you are you're living in the middle of a war and some of you are dressed like me totally not fitting some of you are dressed for a holiday some of you are dressed for just a comfortable smooth ride maybe for sitting at the uh, at the beach on a recliner chair drinking a can of coke all the while bullets fly and shrapnel flies around you Ephesians 6 verse 12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And some of you are dressed like this. Some of you think that you're on a Pacific cruise when you're in the middle of a war. Some of you are just doing work. You're just like going to work day in, day out. And it's just all normal to you. It's all kind of crazy, but it's really a war. Some of you are just doing family. You're just doing family. It's just like, just make enough money. Make enough money to be comfortable so the family goes well, so that we're comfortable at the end. Some of you are doing witness to people around you like this. Like you don't realise that it's like there is, there, it's a life and death situation. Do you know where everyone goes that doesn't know Jesus and doesn't run to him for forgiveness? Do you know where they go? And they stay there. And we walk into those situations dressed like this in our bodies. Well, if it just comes my way, that'll be sweet. You know, if God sets it all up, you know, if someone gets down on their knees and says, how do I get saved? Yeah, I'll tell them then. But the rest of the time... Bodies and a t-shirt. You know, sometimes this week, uh, well, actually this week I've been reflecting on the project. And whether you like it or not, churches take on the personalities of the people that lead them. I think that's right or wrong, it's just an is. It's what it is. And many of the people who have led the project are... Uh, Realists, relaxed realists. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder, even this week, I just think, I wonder how much of Peter's approach, I wonder how much of the approach of some of the leaders in the church as relaxed realists has led us into this. Laid back realism rather than active idealism. Last week I talked about the fact that the only thing that is at risk, that is threatened in our world in terms of the major kind of parts of it are people. God's story is not at risk. We know the ending to it. We know where it's going to end up. It's actually not at risk. The end of the devil is not at risk. We know what's going to happen to him. I mean, we even know what's going to happen with the world, the created world. God's destiny is not at risk. The devil's is not at risk. The world's destiny is not at risk. The story of God is not at risk. You know what's at risk? Everyone else. (laughs) Every human. Every human is at risk. And every one of those humans is in the middle of a war. And most of the world is dressed like this in this war. That's what they're dressed in. It's like bodies and a t-shirt. And there's this furious thing going on and it's like we're just chilling out. It's like don't stress, man, like we're Australians. Like you just need to relax a bit. Just chill out, right? Like this, seriously, what a good world that we live in. We're just here to have a, a chilled kind of time while the bombers fly overhead, the bombs get dropped, the machine gun fire happens. 
people in this world are getting taken out. Have you noticed that this week? They're getting taken out. Not just by physical sickness, they're getting taken out by all sorts of things. Your wife, your children, your friends, your colleagues, you're all in this war, whether you like it or not, and people are getting taken out and there's casualties. And some of us are not the hero from Hacksaw Ridge. You know, the story of Hacksaw Ridge is a, uh, a guy that enlisted in the American army went to war but he didn't want to kill anyone didn't want to fight wanted to be a medic and he climbs up and back onto this ridge and drags 70 odd people off who had been shot and who were dying some of us are not that guy we're this guy well we're just going now i'm sweet (laughs) i love jesus he loves me he's forgiven my sin everything's sweet and there's people just dying. Maybe that's your own family. And you're out, and you're happy, and you're on holidays. Happy holidays. Oh, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You can give or take it twice a month. Just got to stay in the loop. Just, just need to know what's going on in church. See, twice a month church, not saying you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I'm not making rules for you, but I'm just saying that sounds like holiday to me. All right? If you've got a sense that there's a war going on, twice a month's probably not enough. I caught up with this guy. A little while ago, he's just moved up from Sydney and he asked me the question. He said, what do people in Toowoomba worship? What's the thing that they love the most when it's not Jesus? Now, that's a really good question. Do you know what one of the answers to that is in Toowoomba? I think it's family. I think we get stuck in family idolatry and I think it happens in the church too. And I don't think it's helped when the church talks about, or people in the church or Christians talk about the fact that we prioritise God first, then our spouse, then our family and then church. That just doesn't seem biblical to me. You know why? Because I don't think the Bible ever does that. The Bible never prioritises it that way. It actually says that families are meant to find their place within God's family. They're a platoon of their own and they fit into this other thing that's kind of going on. And when we split things up the way that God doesn't mean them to split up, you know what happens? We go on holidays from the battle. We go on holidays from the war. And family, I'm just telling you, family can be a massive excuse to go on holidays from the war. Your main task in this life is not to have a good family. Your main task is to love Jesus, to love your family, to love the world, to be part of the church, and I'm saying the church global, to be part of that church and to be on mission in this war doing what God wants you to do because he's the general. Amen? That, that's, that's your task. And so your job with your children, if you've got children, is like, I've got to find out how do we fit into what God's plan is in the church, how do we all enlist as a whole family? Or maybe you're, um, maybe you're sitting there and you go, oh, that's, well, I'm up for the war. But here's the thing. You can be up for a war and be a doofus, right? Do you know what I'm saying? You can just be a doofus. I, um, I used to be into Call of Duty, and I hesitate to say that because every son sitting here now is going to go home and tell their, their parents, look, see, uh, Peter does it, so that means we can play 23 hours a day, all right? because he said once that he did it. But anyway, I used to play Call of Duty. Not so much that I didn't have a life, but uh, I was into it. And often after school in the afternoons, a number of us would get together in uh, my office and we'd, it was de-stressing, you know, like let's just kill a few pixels, because they're not real people, by the way, kids, in case you didn't know. Uh, kill a few pixels and, um, and, and see how that works out. There was a, 
a computer tech guy in the school here who used to show up. My official title was the Director of Student Welfare. He nicknamed me the Director of Student Warfare. <laughs> he always seemed to turn up when my colleagues and I were playing it. But you know, one of the funniest things, if you've ever played a first-person shooter, it's a bit cruel at one level, but one of the funniest things, if you've ever played a first-person shooter, is uh, to get someone who's never played it before to play the game. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And like, you know all the hideouts, all right? You know where the valley is and you know where the hideouts are and the rocky crags on the top. You know where the good guns are. You've got a sniper rifle that can take someone out at the... Well, sorry, sorry to say this, but knock their head off at about 500 kilometres away. Like, you just... You know how to do all of that and you just go, hey, come and join in this multiplayer game with us. And they, they come in and they play this multiplayer game and they're right out in the middle of where all the action is and they're just wandering around like an idiot. And you just go, what are you doing, man? They get taken out. I wonder if you're like that in your life. Are you walking around in a, a stupid daze, not understanding the significance of where you are? We all get in stupid dozes sometimes. Not thinking about the danger of the moment, you know, like the... Are you the kind of person who would set up a banana lounge with a cold Coke in no man's land? Because we do that sometimes, don't we? We get right in the middle of a, a thick, kind of intense battle. We just don't even know what's going on. It's like, yeah, this is a good time to relax. It's like, no, it's not a good time to relax. <laughs> it's a good time to get attired correctly and to be engaged, fully engaged. You know, one of the ways that I think this happens in the church is that people get complacent when they think about God being sovereign, God having authority. And, and the reason why people get complacent is they just kind of go, yeah, I'm all squared away. God's got this sorted so I can just chill out. And I want to say to you this morning, the authority and the sovereignty of God, the in-chargeness of God was not given to you primarily for defense. It was given to you for offense. That's what it's for. You go to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go. We've been doing Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 is not about weaponry so you can set up a defense and you don't move anywhere. It's actually offense. That's what it's about. Let me ask you this question. Some of you go, man, you've been a bit hard on us today. Well, you know what I'm trying to do today? I'm trying to stir up the troops, okay? That's what I'm doing. Because I don't want you to be lame. Don't be lame and pathetic. Like, I want to stir up the troops. Folks, let's get into this and let's get on the offense, all right? Christians have played defense for too long, all right? We are here to be offensive, not in our manner, but in our mission, When was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? All play. When, when was the last time that you told someone about Jesus and that they were a sinner and they needed Jesus' forgiveness? Like seriously, and I'm not talking about you want to. People go, it's a thought that counts. Well, it doesn't count that much, all right? When was the last time you actually told someone that Jesus was real and that he loved them and that they're on the wrong side of the law and that they needed forgiveness? If it's been 12 months, folks, you're dressed like this. You're dressed like this. You're on holidays. Now, you can get up and walk around in no man's land if you want. But loitering and wandering around aimlessly while there's a war on is a stupid thing to do. Proverbs 7 tells a story about a young man who finds himself loitering around near the adulteress's house. For at the window of my house I've looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. 
passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening at the time of night and darkness. He's an idiot. That's what you meant to say. It's like, don't do that. Don't go there and don't loiter around and don't just be aimless about what you're doing right now, fellow, because you're going down if you do that. It's dumb. There's a war on the go against sin, the world, the devil and his angels. And you're the one and people around us are the ones that are at stake in this war. Let me go one more step. It's enough thinking about the individual. What about the corporate? What does it look like corporately to be in a war? The world has never seen a war like the spiritual war that we're involved in. just hasn't. There is nothing so brutal... There is nothing with the casualties of this war. World War I, World War II, Vietnam, well, there is no war that compares to the casualties and the urgency and the significance and the global scope and size as this war. The battle is bigger, the casualties are greater and the risks are huge. You know, uh, in, second, in the Second World War, this is from the Australian War Memorial, Australia had a population of around 7 million and almost 1 million Australians, men and women, enlisted for the war. That's a massive proportion, right? That's a massive proportion. 1 million people enlisted out of 7 and about half a million of those million served overseas. And they were posted across the world. I mean, even half a million is huge, isn't it? But here's the thing. Anyone who knows their history knows that one of the big deals about war wasn't just what was happening on the front, but what was happening on the home front. True? Because you don't just send 500,000 people over to a foreign country to fight without the 6.5 million at home being part of that. War Memorial says on the home front, the Australian government mobilised its population, economy and industry for total war. Folks, we are in a total war. Prime Minister John Curtin's mantra became all in. Rationing was introduced and the federal government enacted a series of unprecedented restrictions and controls over the daily lives of Australians. The urgent need was to increase available manpower for the services and munitions production. Listen to this. On the grounds of national danger, which is just a shadow of the the danger that's going on right now, on the grounds of national danger, resources were increasingly marshaled under government control and civilians accepted the surrender of many of their individual rights. A war will do that to you, won't it? It will shape society. It'll shape corporately the way that things happen. Listen to this from the War Memorial again. People on the home front were expected to make economic and social sacrifices for the war effort. The Curtin government launched a campaign of austerity in August 1942 and home front propaganda pushed the concept of equality, of sacrifice. People were expected to work harder and avoid luxuries and waste. Despite the difficulties and hardships experienced on the home front, many Australians remember this time for its sense of unity, a time when people worked hard and pulled together. John Piper says this, he says, In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we're on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tyres at home. The war effort touches everybody. We all cut back. 
the luxury liner becomes the troop carrier. Folks, demonic forces are arrayed against you. Your own flesh, your own sinful struggle that you have is arrayed against you. The world is arrayed against you. How are you going to fight? Well, we covered this last week. We don't fight the normal spiritual warfare is not an extraordinary style of spiritual warfare. The normal spiritual warfare is really, really normal. I mean, Paul sets us up, doesn't he, with this pretty intense thing that we're fighting against principalities. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. And then what does he do? He trots out this spiritual armor that just doesn't seem that extraordinary because that's your main stuff that you need to be using. You with me? That's it. He doesn't give you a whole bunch of paranormal rituals, but he does teach you how to do spiritual warfare. And I want to let you know, this is our last message in Ephesians. And he's been talking about spiritual warfare the whole way through Ephesians. It's not like Ephesians 6 is the start of it. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 3, 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You know what chapter 6 is? On your bike, son. (laughs) That's what it is. Chapter 6, on your bike, son. I've been telling you this the whole way along. Let me summarize the way that you need to do spiritual warfare and you go and you carve it up. It's not defensive. It is not defensive. It's get out there and go, son. Get out there and go, daughter. But you need the right gear and you need the right attitude. Let's have a look at Ephesians 6. Grab your Bibles. Ephesians 6. Man, if you don't know Jesus today, this is a really good Sunday to come to church. Every Sunday is. It's good for you to know that there's more going on. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are conspiracy theorists, right? There is a conspiracy going on, but it's not the one that a lot of conspiracy theorists think. There's a much bigger one than that, all right? Some of you go, yeah, but maybe that stuff is... Well, I don't know. We're not going into that, all right? I just know that there is a big conspiracy going on that's way bigger than anything I've heard from a conspiracy theorist. But they don't win. I'm going to read verse 10 to 20 of Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Folks, let's just kick in. You need the right gear. That's what Paul's saying. Oh, there is a battle on and you just need to have the right gear on. And you don't need to find some kind of tricky, sneaky thing to do. It's all pretty straightforward here. We looked at this last week. We looked at each of one of these, uh, these pieces of weaponry and armor that God gives us. Let's start with this one. Have a look at verse 14. Keep your Bibles open in front of you. Fasten on 
the belt of truth. It was a belt that was tied lightly around the waist, indicating the soldiers prepared for action. Some suggest that on it hang the scabbard in which the sword was sheathed. But here's the big question, who is this? And last week we looked at this, that as you look at each one of these pieces of armour, they're actually God himself, they're actually Jesus. Look at this from Isaiah 11, verse 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. There it is. It's Jesus, right? The Messiah. And, and you can see why, right? He is the way, the truth right so what do you need when the devil's out there just spinning lies all the time you need the truth what do you need you need jesus that's what you need you see jesus lived out in the in your life is a living out of the truth it's 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 the belt there so let me ask you this question What evidence is there in your life that you're pursuing truth and pulling out lies in your life and replacing it with the truth of Jesus? You know, every time that you worship and love something more than Jesus, Romans 1 tells us you believe a lie and you absorb a lie. Now, you're going to have some weeds in there. (laughs) Everyone's going to have some weeds in there. Everyone here lives their life by lies at times. So where's the energy in your life? If you've got a wartime kind of mentality and you're putting on the armor of God, you're just kind of going, all right, where's the next one? We're on a lie hunt, and we want to track them down, and we want to root them out, and we want to replace them by Jesus and the truth of Jesus. How many lies do you function on? Some of you go, well, how long is a piece of string? Which is probably close to it. It's like, I don't know. Because here's the thing, when you... When you believe a lie, you're deceived and you don't think you're wrong. <laughs> so you're wrong without thinking that you're wrong. So how would you know that you got it wrong? Well, the only way you know that, it got, that you got it wrong is if you get the truth. And where's the truth come from? Come on, a bit more conviction than that. Truth comes from where? Jesus. All right, come on. The breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. Have a look at it again there. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, this is armor protecting against blows and arrows from the neck to the thighs. One ancient guy says that it was known as a heart protector. What's the breastplate of righteousness? Well, we go to Isaiah 59, 15 to 17 and we see it show up. Speaking of Christ, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation. We're going to get there in a minute. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, no one here is righteous. Righteous just means that you value the most valuable thing most highly all the time. You get it right all the time. And no one here gets it right all the time. And here's the thing. The devil's main job, or one of the devil's main jobs, is to accuse people. And you know what? We've got some stuff that's accused worthy. (laughs) We just do. You know, and if you want to be protected in this fight, you're going to need the righteousness of God on your behalf. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. If you don't know Jesus, what he did is he died on the cross for your sins... And then he gave you his perfect record. And we turn into little kids. Can't get me now. You ever heard a kid say that? They get somewhere that's safe and secure and they go, you can't get me now. See, the breastplate of righteousness is putting on Jesus. It's putting on the record of Jesus where we get protected from accusation. 
So let me ask you this question. Wartime mentality would indicate that someone's pursuing righteousness. It's like, we just love this. We just want to root out unrighteousness, stuff that's wrong, and just want to get things right. And I, I hate it when I get things wrong. Is that how you feel? It's just like, I just, and it's not hated that you get things wrong because of the shame or because someone's going to see it. It's like, man, I just love Jesus, and he has shown me how sweet it is to do things his way. And so I'm just doing things his way. I'm not even doing it so my life goes well. I'm just doing it his way because he's a legend and I trust him and I can just depend upon him. And even when I don't understand why he's making me do something, I'll just do it anyway because he's a good guy. He's with me. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on Christ. Hunger after the righteousness that he has purchased for you. What about this one? Shoes for your feet. Verse 15. says, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Typically, it's a half boot for the person in the army back then. Who is it? Well, look at this. How beautiful upon the mountains, Isaiah 52, 7, are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Who is that? Of course, it's Jesus. All right? If you're in the middle of a war, the feet of someone running to tell you about peace coming is, well, it's weird to say, but they're beautiful feet, right? They're beautiful feet. And you notice this theme actually shows up earlier in Ephesians 2. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. He is the one that runs and tells you about peace, about the peace that he's purchased on the cross. The lone messenger, isn't he? Running across the mountaintops, preaching peace and saying that God reigns. He's that one. He's that one. And here's the thing, like if you have received that message of peace, that Jesus has come to you and you know that you know that you know that he's spoken that word of peace to your heart, you know what your job is? Strap on the shoes (laughs) and you be a mini peace proclaimer. You won't ever do it as well as Jesus, right? He's got that market squared away and you're not having any peace of it. But he does want you to put the shoes on and get out there and tell people about peace. Put him on and be someone who takes the message of truth to others. The shield of faith. Go to verse 16 there. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This is not a dinky little shield. This is like a full body shield, like the size of a door. All right? So just, think, just grab a door and that's close to the shield that you've got. All right? Back in the day, there was a, a big fight. Now, there's a big siege that kind of went on and one soldier actually counted no less than 220 darts sticking into his shield at the end of this fight. You know, typically, cane darts were tipped with uh, toe and, and dipped in pitch and then ignited. Caused more damage. The devil is going to launch some diabolical missiles your way. What's going to hold you in that time is God. And it's your trust in him. It's a resourcing that comes from him. Look at, come on, you know this. The Old Testament is just rife with descriptions of God being your shield. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then Psalms 18, Psalm 18 verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Faith, trust in God, relationally trusting in God, brings about resources your way when you're under attack. All right? Pity the poor person who's not connected to Jesus at that point. Okay? Some of you are sitting there going, yeah, I've been that one. I've been that one who's just been really struggling and not connected to Jesus. All right? It's like, you know, being a scuba diver with a tube that goes up to the, 
the surface of the water. It's like, yeah, I've cut that off in my life. It's like, how are you going to do that? It's going, I don't know, but we, I, I just did. All right? And then it all gets really difficult and really hard. And you just go, why is this so hard? It's like, yeah, well, because you just cut off your life support, your supply. Like, why wouldn't it be hard? Who knows that Jesus is a very present help in times of need? Who knows that? He is, right? So stay connected. Stay connected to him. Verse 17. The helmet of salvation. Oh, it's a, often bronze with cheek pieces on it for protection for the head. But do you know the sense in which this uh, verse is actually written here in, uh, in verse 17? It says, take the helmet of salvation. It's, there's a sense in the original language there that you're taking it as it's given to you. It's not like you've got to go and wait until someone's not looking and then sneak into the storeroom and grab this sucker and run as fast as you can out of there, right? That's, that is not the kind of take that's going on here. The kind of take here is like someone's given you the, shield, the helmet of salvation, so make sure you take that and stick it on. Jesus gives that to you. Yeah, we looked at this before in a scripture. Who is it? He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. That's Jesus. So when Paul's saying put on the helmet of salvation, I don't think he's mainly thinking about a Roman soldier. He's mainly thinking about Jesus. Now, you know what your, uh, the helmet of salvation, I think one of the things that it, it says, it, it, it says a lot about your identity. It says a lot about your identity and who you are in Jesus. And here's the thing. You don't have to be undecided about what team you're on. All right? Be on team Jesus. Here's my tip for you. Be on team Jesus and be identified as someone who's been saved who's on team Jesus. Squared away. So when the thoughts come in and the lies come in, it's like I'm a loser, I'm pathetic, and shame kind of messes with you. And all these things kind of come in and people accuse you and they do stuff. You just go, well, cool, okay, well, maybe there's some stuff that I need to work on. But, you know, fundamentally, at a core level, you know who I am? I am Peter and I'm saved by Jesus. That is my my identity statement. And that's what yours is too, if you love Jesus. And you can say your name, Will, Alex, Jude. It's like, what are you? Well, I am and I'm saved by Jesus. Can't touch me now. Be confident in the salvation that he's brought. Don't, don't kind of click into feeling when you fail, you click into this whole thing where you kind of got to fix it up, you know, you've got to win your way back and all of a sudden the, the balance is going the, the wrong way. So we've got to chip in a few kind of positive deeds on this side, you know, some good deeds that I think God will be happy with and we'll get that sucker back up the level and with any luck, we can get a little bit lower and, and heavier on one side with good deeds. And You with me? Don't do that. Just don't do that. He didn't die on the cross for you to do that. He died on the cross for you to take the salvation that he gives you, stick it on your head, and when you blow it and you get it all wrong, you just say, well, it's a good thing he died for me. <laughs> Who's with me on that? Well, it's a good thing he died for me. Otherwise, I'd be in all sorts of trouble. This one, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's this sword? Well, normally, back in the day, it'd be a sword for close combat. Uh, It says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, but listen to this. It's actually the spoken Word of God. Isaiah 11, 15. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he'll lead people across in sandals. The speaking forth of God's message penetrates people and does wicked damage for good because of the power of the Spirit. And I want to just ask you again, thinking about a wartime mentality, do you seek out the spoken word of God? Do you? Now, I talk to people sometimes, and well, lots of times I talk to them, but sometimes I talk to people and they say this, oh, I don't read very well. And I just want to say to you, 
you just live in a culture where you can't use that excuse anymore, okay? Because you've got Audible, which is where someone reads a book for you. you could, there's more sermons on the internet that you could listen to in a whole lifetime, all right? And if you go, well, I'm not a good radio, you just go, okay, well, just go and buy an audio Bible and play that. You see, I think our technology has taken us to a point where the issue is not ability or preference, it's actually wartime lifestyle. <laughs> Folks, normal spiritual warfare is about dependence on God. That's what it is. And that's the kind of spiritual warfare you need to engage in. And don't quote me on this. But I'm just saying it for an example, 98% of the time. 98% of the time. Can you come with me and we're just going to finish off in Ephesians 6, starting at verse 18. Because you know the whole time I've been talking about attire and now I just want to talk about attitude just for the last few moments. Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. Praying... Well, let me take 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Listen, praying at... What's the next word? Everyone say that loud. All. Praying at all times in the Spirit with... What's that one? All. Prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with... What's the next one? All. Perseverance. Making supplication for who? All the saints. Has Paul got something to say to us today? Here's the thing. Prayer is the foundation for the deployment of every other spiritual weapon that we just looked at. And it doesn't actually get included as a spiritual warfare weapon. See, the struggle with the world, the flesh and the devil is going to be ongoing. You need to have an ongoing connection to God. And I think you want to see where someone's wartime mentality is at. You probably look at their prayer life. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily about someone who puts aside an hour and a half every morning to pray. Is it, I'm talking about something different and I think Paul's talking about something different here. It's like, do you remember that screen about dial-up internet? Some kids here are just, or young adults are going, what is that? I don't even know. You can Google that. All right. And I'm even just going to play you what it used to sound like. Can we just do that now? Does anyone remember this? Does anyone remember that? And the other sound that you normally hear is, who's on the internet? I want to make a phone call. You know, you know, you can talk about prayer in a dial-up internet kind of way, but I think we need to talk about prayer in a broadband ADSL kind of way. Always on, always connecting. You look at those, here's the thing, you go home and every time you're sitting at your desk and you see those lights flashing, you want to remember that's the kind of prayer that God wants from you. It doesn't mean that there aren't times of really focused, extended prayer. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that this is prayer at all times, in all things, for all people, all the time. You just all, all, all. All right? Some of you go, well, how do I do that? Well, you just need to learn how to be dependent upon God. That's what you need to learn. And you'll talk to him more. You need to realize maybe that he's your friend and he actually wants to hear what happened in your day. You need to be prompted and guided by the Spirit in your prayer. All right? Absolutely. That's what Paul talks about, praying in the Spirit. Keep alert. Pray at all times perseverance boldness and not fear here's the thing is the project church you can answer this for yourself is the project church alert is it alert as a group of people do you look at your life and the life of the church here and just go we're alert we're sitting on the edge of our seats 
So this from John Piper. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Uh, we could stop there, right? Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished and to that end he's authorised me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay tuned to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send in air cover when you or your comrades need it. But what have millions of Christians done? They've stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. Do you know what Paul's doing here? He's calling upon people to pray. Verse 19 there. Why does he call? What is one of the key things he calls on them to pray? And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Who would like someone else to pray for them about that? I would. And I went through Sydney University so sick and tired of being asked whether I was going to be a priest at school that I told people at uni that my dad, who was a pastor, was working in an office job in, in the centre of Sydney, but I would tell them that my dad had an office job in town. Paul's in jail. And he's saying, would you pray for me so that I would be bold, courageous in my witness and my speaking of Jesus? Someone actually asked me to do this for them this week. I met up with someone in the church and they said, would you pray for me that I would speak boldly at my workplace? And I just went, that is a really good prayer to pray. And it's a really good prayer request. Ask other people to pray for you in this. I'm absolutely persuaded that one of the reasons why we just don't see as many miracles in our country as appears to happen in other places is there's less risk. You know, it seems to me that God, you know, he gets a bit stirred up when when his children start taking risks for other people's good and for his glory you know and and you start to see amazing things happen and I would say that from my own life it's been the the things that really scare me that I feel like God's calling me to do that he actually comes through in really marvelous ways he gets busy when we take risks for him In the uh, First World War, a, uh, a German um, fighter's diary was um, found and this, this is what was written in the diary. A, a couple of Britons brought a ball along from their trenches and a lively game of soccer or football began. How fantastically wonderful and strange. The English officers experienced it like that too that thanks to soccer and Christmas, the feast of love, deadly enemies briefly came together as friends. You know what happened is the Allies and the Germans played soccer against each other in no man's land, basically. So you got this brutal battle going on where hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. Christmas Day comes and you end up with this soccer-friendly happening in no man's land. And it was one of several impromptu soccer matches played between British and German forces in no man's land that Christmas. 
see, for one day, and in some sectors of the line apparently for several days, the enemies made a spontaneous peace. I don't want to be too cheesy or corny, but Christmas is about Jesus, right? And at some, Jesus had something to do with mortal enemies putting their weapons down and playing soccer together. That's a strange piece. I mean, that's why people talk about it. That it's a strange piece. Why would you do that? Why would you one minute be trying to kill each other and the next minute we're playing soccer together? So strange, in fact, that some people have doubted whether it even happened and questioned whether it's even happened because of the strangeness of it. And I want to say to you this morning, folks, that one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring a strange peace. (laughs) It'll be a peace that you've only ever had a whiff of in the wind. It'll be like nothing that you've ever experienced. It'll be something maybe that you've had a brief snippet of and you'll just go, you can almost taste it in the air and you'll go, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I got a whiff of that at one point, but nothing like this. Only a bit here and, and a bit there and we have moments of peace inside of us. But folks, for now, we're in a war zone. The day of peace is coming and it will be an odd peace where the lion will lie down with the lamb, where the child will play next to the hole of a cobra or a snake and not get hurt. But for now, we're on a war footing. Now, you might be really tired, but it doesn't change the fact that you're on a war footing, okay? Which is why it's even more important that we work together, folks. While we're in community together, while we're praying for each other, while we should be praying for each other that we would be a bold witness in areas where we're fearful, because it's still a war footing. Don't get caught out in the wrong gear. Don't get caught out with the wrong attitude. 